come to me I hear a sound busy like traffic Headed out of this town Hello, listeners, and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI, a show where I bring you stories from UCI researchers and faculties in the arts, humanities, and science. Today we have Jessica Yaros, a PhD student in uh, neurology, here to talk about her research. Uh, Jessica, I'm so glad that you're on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to um, get into a conversation about your research, which is fascinating. To start off, uh, what is um, one of the main topics of your research, the other race effect? Right. So the other race effect is the tendency to be better able at recognizing faces within your own race. So if you've ever heard someone say or just even jokingly, like, they all look the same to me, that sort of is um, like a colloquial way to talk about people's issues with remembering faces of other races, which can often lead to um, uncomfortable and offensive situations. Right. So I'm studying that really from not just the social perspective, but the neurobiological perspective. So I'm um, looking to figure out what's going on in the human brain um, when we fail to remember faces in other race groups as well as faces of our own race group. That is so interesting. Um, A lot of people would think that that sort of thing is is not neurological and it's purely social. So it was really surprising to me when I found out um, that you were finding these things. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, social and, and neurobiological, they're just different perspectives that we can look at the same thing. So there's a lot more research in the area of the other race effect in the field of social psychology. Uh, so we have a lot of studies looking at people's failure to remember faces. And, and there happen, these studies just are published in so, social psychology journals. Um, and all I do is look at those same similar studies, but while neuroimaging uh, subjects or uh, just participants here on campus. And so I'm just able to add a layer to the conversation. Um, and I think that we sometimes think that things that are social or psychological are separate from biological, but in my mind, they're all integrated because we talk about um, nature and nurture and how experience can shape the way we are. So we know that experience can change our biology, right? So I look at how experience with faces, um, regardless of race, experience with faces over the lifetime, but also propensity to have experience with faces that are a little bit homogenous or within one race group might actually alter the way our brain is structured and uh, programmed to react to faces. Wow. How long have you been researching this? So I've been working on this topic for about five years. Wow. And what exactly um, do the kind of studies that you do entail? Yeah, so so in order to look at anything in the brain, first, you know, you want to establish um, a strong uh, study, basically create a study where you're able to find some strong behavior, right? So originally I had programmed, so I, you know, in my field you of computer, I'm, 
I'm sorry, uh, cognitive neuroscience, you're often needing to program studies or experiments, kind of like mini games, boring mini games where people look at faces and they make responses to them. So I, I had designed a study, um, looked at about 100 participants, asked them to remember faces of several races, um, and then tested them on them and found that people were much better at remembering faces of their own race than faces of other races. Um, and there's a little bit more nuance to the study, but I, I don't know if I should be getting in the weeds, but um, we just found, we reproduced the strong thing that people see in, in the real world, which is that we seem to struggle more to remember faces of other races. Um, and so now I've taken that study um, and I'm rerunning it uh, in while subjects perform it in the MRI scanner. So now I can actually look at what's going on in their brains to explain the behaviors or the ways that they're actually performing on, on the study or on this game, if you will. Interesting. And I saw that in the past you had done this same experiment with uh, young babies, which I thought was really interesting because they don't have any sort of, you know, experiences or like, prejudices built up yet. Right, right, definitely. Um, so I did not particularly do a study with infants, but there's a large, I used to work with infants in a different field, but there's a large body of research looking at the other race effect in, in infants. And basically the way that infant research in perception works is since we can't talk with them, the way we track what what they're engaged in is by looking at attention and how long they look at something. Um, and so we find it varies, but in the first year of life, at some point between three and nine months of age, uh, infants tend to start paying more attention to faces of their own race. Um, and this is cited as sort of an early difference in how we attend to faces, but just it shows that there's something different from a very early stage um, with people and it has something to do with exposure probably to faces and the faces that you become familiar with you and to tend to start paying more attention to and we see that up throughout throughout life right and how exactly does this work on the neurological neurological level is it more um, which faces have they been exposed to or who are they most closely genetically related to. Right. So there is evidence that it's about exposure to an extent. So so children that have been adopted um, by families that are a different biological race to them and who get raised in potentially uh, societies or communities that are more look more like their parents um, are going to be better often at recognizing faces of the race that they're most familiar with. So it's less about biologically your race and more about the exposure um, to races, at least at an early age. Um, and then once we start getting older, our, we're also subject to sort of social factors, um, like forming conceptual stereotypes and, and how stereotypes about different groups can change how we might attend to and remember faces. So it gets pretty complicated. Um, but there's definitely strong evidence that it's not about your biological race. It's about the faces that you are exposed to the most in combination with 
um, what you're motivated to attend to. Right. And why do you believe this phenomenon came to be? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, you know, it's hard to say, you know, it might just be an evolutionary byproduct of of the tendency to form groups and and factions. Um, And it I really don't know why it came to be, but there's certainly historical evidence of it. Um, There's a paper from 100 years ago. um, Yeah, almost 100 years ago now, fine by Feingold. And he brought up the other race effect. It was before it had a name, but he just mentioned, well, everyone knows, you know, to to people in in Europe, all the language was a little bit problematic, but what he was trying to say was that people, to people in Europe, everyone who is from Asia looks the same. And to people in Asia, everyone who is from Europe looks the same. So it was sort of like this first mention of the other race effect in in this research before it had even been put a label on, you know? Like people talked about it, they knew about it. There was just no one that ever at that point decided to actually look at it. Um, so it probably goes back a very long time. It just is in the last hundred years that people started to study the effect. Yeah. Have you noticed any trends on um, which races, other races, that they tend to have difficulty with? Or is it pretty even among every race other than whichever one of the person you're studying? Mm-hmm. Um so the the race that groups have difficulty with is very dependent on their nationality. Um, so there's a lot of research in the U.S. Um, that will look at difficulty in white or Caucasian groups with remembering black faces. There's a lot of research in Asia, particularly in China, looking at difficulty um, in Chinese participants at remembering faces, white faces or black faces. Um, and my particular research, I'm looking at difficulty remembering uh, black faces relative to East Asian faces in an East Asian population. Right. And obviously the findings are somewhat troubling um, mm-hmm. of this effect. How can we use these findings to decrease racial bias in our society, specifically the American justice system? Right. Well, that is a great question. And sometimes I struggle with, well, why am I even looking at the neuroimaging, right? We know that this effect is real. Um, there seems to be evidence that that it can be trained out, at least temporarily, right? So if we take a group of subjects, test their facial recognition skills, on their own race and another, and then train them up on faces of that other race and immediately test them later, you'll find that there's actually a reduction in recognition. Um, So behaviorally, at least, this kind of research is evidence that you might be able to train people to be better at recognizing faces. Um, Now, the question is, how really to implement that so that it might actually affect change in the criminal justice system, right? Because there's widespread pervasive issues with uh, people of color being falsely misidentified a lot more um, than than white individuals. And, and that's most likely, um, the it's most likely 
partly due to this issue with facial recognition. Um, so basically, knowledge, uh, legal, basically, you should be telling uh, judges can um, inform juries about false memory. They can inform juries about the issues with eyewitness testimony prior to trials. Um, that's one one thing we could do. It's possible you could create training paradigms to assess people on their facial recognition skills and use that as a sort of measure um, to gauge how how much reliability you should place in their facial recognition testimony. However, that can be ethically weedy. Um, but in terms of just what we can do is be aware that we um, even, you know, regardless of implicit bias um, or stereotypes that have built been built up in each person over the years, being aware that we have these and being aware that sometimes they can be partly just due to the faces that you've been exposed to from day one. So um, attention to faces outside of our own race group can really help to minimize memory deficits later on. So if you know that you have trouble with certain um, certain types of faces, if you actively try to be better, it's likely going to show in your subsequent memory for those faces. Kind of like people who are really bad with names, you know, then if you like make a concerted effort when you hear a name to make an association or to start to think about it, you're more likely to get better at it. So practice and intention is really important here. Yeah. Uh, this research is definitely, could be seen as controversial. Uh, do you face challenges when you present your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always, you. I have to be careful about the way I talk about things and I'm always looking for help um, and advice on how I can be sensitive. Um, and so I do, there was one talk that I gave where a faculty member came to me and at the time I was talking about different races and I used the term white instead of Caucasian. Um, and he came to me afterwards and talked with me about how there are different definitions of whiteness. And if I'm talking about different races, at least in that respect, I should consider uh, using the term Caucasian. So um, I've been more using that term since then. So um, I'm just looking for, I want as much feedback as possible and advice as possible. So um, being open to other people's beliefs and feelings is always really important with this and not um, getting, you know, offended that someone might um, take issue with the way that you say something because I think that there are people that know how to talk about this better than I do. Right. Although I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> Five years. <laughs> um, do you continue, do you plan to continue studying this? And what research do you predict building on it in the future? Yeah, so um, I am really interested in this area of research, particularly in several areas of the brain um, that might be involved in producing or in contributing to the formation of the other race recognition deficit. Um, so I'd really like to follow some of these threads that I'm looking at in terms of um, 
different regions that haven't been looked at before. Um, I'm not committed to staying in facial recognition research um, or research entirely. So I'm a PhD candidate and I will be deciding uh, fairly soon whether um, I plan to stay um, in research for the next few years or go out into industry, so they say. Um, but I'm very fascinated by research in general, so I'm hoping to stay for a little longer. <laughs> nice. By industry, um, what do you mean exactly? Right. So industry, honestly, is just a word that academics often use to say le like anything but academia. And um, in general, for scientists, it can often mean going to, if you're like a biologist, going to a pharmaceutical company or a, a medical devices company. Now, for someone like me, I'm not a, I don't, when you think of a scientist in a, in a lab coat, you know, with pipettes, that's not what my day-to-day -day life looks like. For me, I'm, I'm in front of a computer or I'm at the MRI scanner. So it's less obvious, you know, what I can do. It, you know, I can't go and work in a typical lab, right? So for people that are doing work like me, you could, you, there's not much MRI research, you know, in, in the way that I do it away from academia. So the question is, do you become a medical writer, a science writer? Do you go into science communication? Do you become a data analyst? Or do you work um, in uh, regulations like FDA regulate, regulatory industry, um, helping get medical devices or, or medications to market, stuff like that? Right. And how did you find your way into studying the other race effect? So. That was actually, it was not my intention. I, I was in a memory lab. So I met in the Yasna Translational Neurobiology Lab here at UCI. And um, the lab at the time was really focused at looking at this effect um, in humans and animals called mnemonic discrimination. And it's kind of different than memory in the way we think about it. It's not being able to remember an event that you experienced. It's actually, mnemonic discrimination is being able to discriminate between similar events in memory. So, you know, if any listeners have ever walked to their car and like been like, oh my gosh, where's my car? It's stolen. And then you realize, oh, you parked it somewhere, you parked across the lot today. You know, you're... You're at first making a mistake and you're generalizing where you parked yesterday to where you parked um, today. So basically, I wanted to study that effect and I wanted to see potentially how expertise in, in, an, in a region or expertise in a concept might um, enhance our ability to, to uh, discriminate memories from one another. So say... If, if someone's like an expert in a car or an expert in bird species, are you able to um, see a bunch of birds and then later see them again and be able to say, oh, I've never seen those birds before? Or, you know, I've never seen those people before if we're talking about faces better. So in this context, is someone who is a face expert, um, there are these people that are, they're called super face recognizers, right? Um, they have they just remember faces forever. Are they also better at knowing when they haven't seen a face before? Um, 
And so it's just a way that we haven't really looked at facial recognition before. Um, the field hasn't. So it was exciting to think about going into that. Wow. And do you predict sometime maybe far in the future that we could possibly have some sort of treatment or medication that will improve people's facial recognition? <laughs> you know, there. honestly, I, I don't know about that a medication would do much. Um, though, I mean, I've heard about certain medicines supposedly that might make your brain more pliable or plastic, we might say, and susceptible to learning more easily. Um, and I can't recall what these medications are. It's not my area of research. But it's possible in a world where you have a medication that could make your brain more a better um, poised to learn that if we train people on certain things during that period that that information might be better solidified so hypothetically if we could give someone a medication make their brain all gooey and plastic and play-doh-y train them on faces of you know everyone during that time period maybe you could have much better facial recognition but uh, <laughs> Before then, we should just really be trying to make concerted efforts and knowing that knowing that we might have deficits, trying to compensate for them. Yeah, that seems more doable. <laughs> um, so some people I've heard have face blindness and are not able to recognize any faces. Right. What's what's the science behind what makes someone good or bad at recognizing a face? Yeah, so there are two types of this, and this is called, uh, the academic term is prosopagnosia. And um, there's congenital prosopagnosia, and there's prosopagnosia that's acquired. So I'll talk about acquired first. Acquired is when you have a stroke in a specific region of the brain that's focused on facial recognition. So I've mentioned a couple of brain regions earlier. Um, one of them is called the fusiform face area, and it's very important for facial recognition. So if you were to have a stroke that leads to damage in that area, that can completely eradicate your ability to recognize faces. And it's not so much that you can't see faces. You see the full face. It's just that you don't know who those faces belong to. It's like you would not know if you're looking at a picture of yourself or a picture of the current president. You just can't tell the difference between faces. Um, so we understand that kind of prosopagnosia because we know that the region devoted to faces is gone, right? Congenital prosopagnosia is when you're born without the ability to recognize faces, and that is a lot harder to understand because the facial region that we know of is built on, built up based on experience, right? So once you have this region devoted to face processing, it makes sense if it's taken out why you can't recognize faces. But when you never have the region to begin with, we don't really, we just don't really understand what could happen from the beginning of life to prevent you from forming those face representations in the brain. Um, at least to my knowledge, it's not my area of expertise. So um, if anyone out there knows otherwise, please let us know. Right. And so when you're looking at these people in the MRI machines conducting these studies, does it visually look different when they're looking at someone of a different race? Mm -hmm. Some studies have shown that. Um, and I do see differences in the brain um, for different conditions. Um, 
and it gets a little bit complicated, but there are situations where you have more activity in the brain for faces of your own race um, in specific regions of the brain than for faces of other races. Um, on the flip side, there are other also cases where you might have more activity for faces of other races than faces of your own race. Um, and so we're still trying to figure out how activity in certain regions of the brain actually connects to behavior. Um, and there's so many different areas of the brain involved in facial recognition, right? There's the visual processing regions of which we have five or six different face patches. And then we have these sort of attentional regions. So as I mentioned, you can sort of sometimes override your propensity be, to be bad at facial recognition by paying attention. There's all these attentional regions of the brain. If they're more engaged, um, you're more likely to remember faces. So all of this information is integrated somewhere, somehow, and we're just still trying to figure out the beginning of that. Right. What are some other neurological discoveries that you think might have sociological impacts? Mm. So some of these are, are related to, uh, peripherally related to my research. Um, so I think there's some really interesting work in pain perception and specifically like social pain empathy. So there's research that has shown that people, um, there's certain regions of the brain that are sensitive to um, when you think about someone in pain, they sort of light up. There's a lot of oxygen that's consumed and these areas of the brain is, are working heavily when I think about someone that's in pain, right? So there's research showing that there are differences in the brain when, say, I think about someone in pain that is of my own race versus when I think about someone in pain that is of another race. There's less activity going on. Uh, and this is interpreted like there's some sort of lack of of pain empathy and it's dependent on on these sort of racial stereotypes and there has been evidence that people that have interacted more with um, other race individuals tend to have um, increased em empath empathic pain perception basically so it's I think that's socially important because when we say things um, that disregard other people um, of other groups, um, it's possible that areas of the brain are involved and in that we, for some reason, are ascribing less, less humanity to people and literally feeling less of their pain, right? So if exposure not just to faces but of people can even decrease um, or increase how we actually feel empathetically towards people. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, that's troubling to learn that it's so, that there is an actual scientific basis to these prejudices that people have, but mm -hmm. it's really helpful to know that now that we are understanding how it works more, we can try to you know, work on combating it. Definitely. There's the scientific basis, but it's clear that that exposure um, negates deficits or or differences between how we um, experience the pain of, of different groups. Right. So uh, that's about all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great time. And uh, listeners, um, thank you so much for tuning in. 
please have an amazing day. Stay curious and stay kind to each other out there. This is Office Hours on KUCI.88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Sibel Kaler. That was Jessica Yaros. And this is Office Hours signing off. Look at me I put my faith In something the eye Can't see Yes I believe Without a sign